Good morning. Just before we, uh, before we dig into the scripture, I've got two exciting announcements for you. Um, one is that many of you were around in December and heard that we were raising funds as we do every Advent, every dollar in December that is given immediately goes out to a, a strategic partner that we have. This year it was City to City who is planting churches in major cities around the world. We've been working with them for five years and all of our dollars were going to some hub cities in West Africa and Northern India. We set what felt like a real stretch goal for us as a community of giving $350,000 in a single month to benefit this work of the hub cities. Um, just by reference, our budget month to month, our anticipated giving month to month is 166000 So we, we set a goal of over double. And I just want to say thank you and praise God for what he did. We raised $428,000 in the month of December that's going to go to planting churches in northern India and West Africa that is going to be encouraging collaboration and raising up new leaders. And we're going to continue in a relationship that's been going for five years as we continue to press in with that organization and some of the leaders on the ground. And just want to say praise God for what he's doing um, through you through your faithfulness and generosity in response to the call of God. Secondly, many of you are involved in our prayer and fasting this month. And if, if you're not, I'd invite you to jump in. We we're, we're, have a month of prayer and fasting, including last Wednesday we called the whole of the church to fast and pray and come together on Wednesday night. And just want to let you know that it, it felt like an initial answer to prayer, that at the conclusion of that prayer meeting, uh, a, a young man who's given me permission to share just a, a, the smallest bit of his story, a man named Ian, who had been invited by a coworker and friend to house church. He'd been a few times, and then he took the initiative to come to the prayer night. And while at the prayer night, he gave his life to the Lord, and he was in the 9 a.m. worship service. And um, we, we just believe that's the first fruits as we're leaning in and begging God to move. That I just rejoice in your generosity, your faithfulness, your willingness to lean in and pray. And here was someone that by, by all accounts of those that were close to him, they're like, we really don't feel like we did a great job. We didn't do it all right. But he stepped into the presence of God on Wednesday and said, I wanna, I wanna be born again. And so we're rejoicing that. He's actually driving right now to be with his family to tell them all about the decision that he's made. And, and so we're rejoicing in that. God's on the move. And we're looking forward to what he has for us in this new year. And to that end, I'd invite you to pray with me as we prepare to dig into this text. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are alive and active. And as we begin this series, studying through the book of Daniel, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to receive the, the truth of this text, that it would have its way with us. And I pray, God, that we would learn how to be people that, that are faithful and flourish even far from home. And that we would understand our identity as exiles and strangers. And that we would learn and glean from brothers that have gone before as we pay attention to Daniel and some of the young men that stood with him. I pray, God, that we're where we are prone to look like the world or we're prone to constantly be combative with the world, that you would give us a different, fuller, better picture of what it means to thrive as an exile. We look forward to what you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we are. We're starting a new series this morning that will take us through the first couple of months of the year. If you're new here, we are the sort of people that love the Bible and we love to work through books of the Bible. It leads us into places that we wouldn't have picked on our own. We're just letting the text lead us. And, and this book is a, a book that is part narrative, part prophecy that takes place around 600 B.C. It's the story of a young man named Daniel and some of his friends who were taken into exile. Um, So it's 600 BC, the southern kingdom, and they have been taken in the first wave, as we'll read this morning, by the Babylonian powers to the Babylonian courts. And what we will learn by the end of this chapter is that Daniel will spend the whole of his life far from home. And yet he will flourish He will bear fruit and experience God's kindness. He will actually discover that God reigns even in Babylon. And as he does, it will be instructive for us as a people. The structure of this book is that the first six chapters are going to focus on the man. We're going to get to know Daniel really well and the way that he sees and trusts and understands and and walks with God. And that's what breeds courage even in a distant land. In the second half of the book, we're going to see the message. We'll be invited into some of the Old Testament prophetic and understand how his message buoyed the souls of people for generations that lived in this very same way. And as we do, we will be learning how to be the sort of people that flourish far from home. Because the truth is, God's design, Old Testament and New, is that he is often working from the margins. And this is something we have to affirm and understand to make sense of the text that we're about to plunge into. That in the Old Testament, it was a a brief period of time where the people of God actually lived in the promised land with, uh, with the leaders that God had marked out over them. That was actually the, the exception and not the rule of the Old Testament. God initiated a relationship with Abraham and people lived at a distance from the land and they lived with anticipation and longing. They lived as slaves. They lived in the wilderness and then they lived in exile and then they even lived in a heartbreaking homecoming because most consistently throughout the old covenant, God was working in his people on the margins and in weakness. And then incidentally, he initiates a, his new covenant family through his son Jesus, through his death and resurrection and then his ascension and the falling of the Holy Spirit, he marks out a people that in the early church history also were seeing God's kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven from the margins. This is how they operated. They were an oppressed people for 300 years. But the interesting thing is that we as a people live with a hangover from something called Christendom. In the mid-fourth century, all of a sudden Christianity and power became aligned. Christianity began to be leveraged in the same ways that the, the powers of the world are leveraged. Thinking that if we have political power and might, if we can be in the seat of power, that's how we'll bring God's kingdom to earth. Which incidentally... God never invited the early church to, and in fact, the vast majority of the time in dealing with his people, they were operating from the margins. There were some good things that came from that season that we're still grateful for, but there's a lot of questionable things that have happened in our history as the life of a church because power and this call of the gospel got intertwined in ways that I don't think God ever intended. And now in 2022, we sit in this place where We have to wrestle with what is our identity. And I think the New Testament would say this. You're an exile and a sojourner and an alien and you're far from home. This world would be tremendously 
confusing and frustrating the degree to which we demand it to be our home. Where we want to garner power and make it our home. Where we want to make things the way they're supposed to be by the world's power. This, this is ultimately a fool's errand. But what God is saying is, I reign in Babylon. You are far from home. You're on the edges. And you have the potential to even from a, a place of being like leaven in the dough, from being, from being a remnant in the whole. This is the invitation of the church to recognize that we were made for another land. And we are invited to embrace our identity as exiles and sojourners and learn how to flourish even far from home. And in chapter one, we're gonna receive our first lesson along these lines, learning how to thrive as exiles. Not like merely survive or get by or hunker down and wait it out, but how can we be a people right where we are right at your job, right among your circle of friends, right in this place in 2022 with our government officials, our space, the decisions that are made around us, whatever is happening, what does it look like for us to be a people that thrive as exiles far from home? Daniel 1's gonna have a lot to say about that. So I want us to dig in together. How can we thrive as exiles? The first thing that we're gonna see in verses one through seven is this. We must embrace must understand and embrace our divine sentness. Let me see if I can make sense of that to you. Let's, let, let's read back through verses one through seven. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar was a warrior king. He is leading Babylon on this, this march as they're conquering the known world. One of the most powerful men on the planet at this point. And the headlines would read at this moment, Babylon conquers Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar's power reigns. Verse two says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The the headline here might read, and Marduk, the god of the God of Nebuchadnezzar reigns because now the things from the temple have been stripped and brought into the temple. If you're just reading the headlines of the news of the day, Nebuchadnezzar reigns, Marduk reigns. It says the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now here he's, he's taking the cream of the crop from Jerusalem of which Daniel and his friends are a part. So this is nobility, this is the wealthy, This is the good-looking, this is the educated. So they come into a new conquered city and they say, we're gonna take the youths without blemish, the good-looking, intelligent, connected, wealthy ones, and we're gonna pull them away from Jerusalem. And then we're gonna educate them back in the land of Babylon. It says, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. You see, this would be enough to leave Daniel and his partners 
wringing their hands in anxiety and fear if you're just reading the headlines of the day. Because what, the way that the world would read this is that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered, Marduk has conquered, and now the, the most promising future leaders of Israel have been carried away and are being educated in Babylonian courts. It feels like the enemy's plan is unfolding perfectly. He has isolated these young leaders. He's indoctrinating them in the ways of Babylon. He's inviting them into indulgence by feeding them from the king's table with his food and wine. And it's an assault on their identity as they are renamed with Babylonian names. You hear it. Isolation, indoctrination, indulgence, identity. They're being stripped away. They're being stripped of their very Israeliteness. They're being de-Israelited, Right? He wants them to forget where they've come from. They are teenagers living in a distant land. And if I were Daniel and these men, the temptation is, and the temptation is even for us, if we're not careful as exiles and sojourners, to start, start wringing our hands and going, oh no, how, how are we gonna make this work? We don't have the position of power or privilege anymore and everything has been stripped away from us. But, but you see, the key that unlocks the door, that allows us not to play scared, not to be afraid of our identity, is that Daniel's whole story unfolds with this understanding that he has been sent by God. Did you see it in verse two? It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It's actually three instances in the chapter one where the Lord is giving, and the first giving is the handing over of his people and his temple to the Babylonians. And what Daniel knows to be true is because he was hanging out in Jerusalem in the years leading up, he knows men like Jeremiah, who is a prophet prophesying leading up to this for years in Jerusalem, who said, the people of God have disobeyed God and he is going to uphold the glory of his name by pouring out judgment on them. He's not just gonna stand idly by while they rebel. What Daniel knew is this, the headlines were wrong. Nebuchadnezzar is a puppet of God. And Marduk has not conquered Yahweh. Yahweh is allowing himself to be publicly humbled because he is committed to the glory of his own name and upholding the truth of his word. You see, Daniel actually wakes up in Babylon going, God sent me here. The first key to being an exile that's going to thrive it's not just going to survive or hang on or be combative and always starting fights, but an exile that's going to flourish far from home is going, God sent us here. God's in control of this. You didn't end up with a, a boss that you have accidentally. We don't end up with a president or a governor or a mayor accidentally. We don't end up in certain situations and times and places with certain ideas that are being thrust upon us where we start to feel like, oh no, so many of the realities of our day threaten to generate fear and hand-wringing. And into that space, I think God would say, take a deep breath and realize, I've placed you right where you are. And I never, I never intended for you to experience home in this world. So if it feels like Babylon that's okay. That's okay. I've actually sent you there. One of the quotes from Dale Davis that was, has been encouraging to me along these lines is he says, sometimes God allows hardships to reach us because he wants his mercies to reach beyond us. 
This is certainly his intention with Daniel and these men that they are thrust into something that they're pressed into the margins. They're pressed into the edges. They don't have the power. They are in what feels like a dangerous position, but it's all part of God's design because his mercy is gonna work through these men in this situation. If every difficulty or every reminder that you're not at home causes lots of anxious whys, oh, why does it have to be this way? Why does it have to be so hard? Why... In that place, I think God gently and firmly is saying to us, why are you so surprised? You are not at home. And and if this world is gonna make sense and your call of how to respond in the midst of this world is going to be embraced, the first thing you have to do is recognize he sent you here. He sends us to the margins. Now the question is, what are we supposed to do there? There's two things that emerge that we are called to do in the margins. The first is this, resolve not to be defiled. We resolve not to be defiled. Look at verse eight with me. It says this, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, Daniel, in this moment, is enduring a great deal of Babylonian culture being thrust upon him. But for one reason or another, he draws the line at the food and the drink. Why is that? Theologians and commentators don't really agree. There's a lot written on this. There's at least two ideas, and I think probably both are in play in some level. The first is that the Mosaic Law has a lot to say about food, and there's potential that what was on the king's plate was not kosher, and that would not have been It would have been sinful for an old covenant believer to eat what was on the plate. That's quite possible. Though it's not, it doesn't say that in the text, but it's possible. So it might be that Daniel's going, I can't sin against my God in this way. It's also possible that it it seems that what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is he's trying to get these young guys to love being in Babylon. He's educating them. He's taking them away from home, but he's not trying to make it hard on them. He wants them to delight in it. Eat what the king eats. Drink what the king drinks. Three times a day, the invitation is, love it. It's not so bad. This could be a good home. Maybe you should settle down here. Enjoy the comforts of the land. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, high living very easily masters the senses and blunts the sharp edge commitment of young Christians. I'm gonna read that one again. High living very easily masters the senses and blunts the sharp edge commitment of young Christians. The good life that Daniel was offered was intended by the king to wean him away from the hard life to which God had called him. Whether it was because it was sin and non-kosher or because it was indulgent and he wanted to remind his heart that he was not at home, whatever it was, Daniel engaged in some really risky resolutions. Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuch, says, I could lose my head over this, Daniel. Like, this isn't just a little decision. It feels small. It's just about what he's gonna eat. But he's saying there's a lot of pressure on this, Daniel, and you could, you could lose your life if this doesn't go well. In essence, he's saying, Daniel, everybody's going along. Right now, you're a slave that has been delivered from home, and if you just keep your head down and you do what everyone else is doing, you could be nobility. You could be a person of stature in this new land. Just keep your head down. Go along. 
And here's Daniel and the three men standing with him going, we are setting our heart. That's what resolution is. We are setting our heart on something. We will not be defiled. It raises this question. Where are you at risk of being polluted? Or said another way, where are you at risk of just looking too much like the world? Where is it for you? It may be a one-to-one it reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend sometime back, a really faithful saint, older, has been walking with the Lord for a long time, but in a moment of honesty, they made the comment, you know, Jeremiah, my love of and delight in and commitment to wine has so robbed me of affection for God. He said, I open a bottle of red wine nearly every night and it clouds my senses, and I wake up slow in the morning. I feel so dulled and distant from God. I love him, but I've let my enjoyment of this thing. It's actually, it's, it may not be some distant application for you. It may be indulgence. It may be that three times a day, what fills your plate or what fills your cup or the way you end your day or you start your day is, is beginning to display that you are trying so hard to make this your home. You want to be satisfied in every way in what this world has to offer. Maybe that's you. It might be the entertainment you're engaged in, the way that you imbibe of social media and different things. It may be that you so fill your head with the narratives of Babylon that when you open the scriptures, you start going, I don't even know if this makes sense anymore. Like I just, I sing the songs of Babylon and I watch the shows of Babylon and I rehearse the narrative of Babylon so consistently that when I'm actually being reoriented to life at home, I go, well, I don't know if this makes sense. And God's going, that's because you haven't made a resolution. You didn't pause and consider this is not your home and the ways of this world should not be our ways. Where do we need to resolve not to be defiled in this time and place? You see, the stands taken early over seemingly innocuous things actually work the muscles that prepare us for the, the real moments of testing. Daniel's an intern right now. You know, he's going to class. He's learning his Babylonian. Uh, and he's drawing a line on food and wine. But in the coming chapters, he and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego become elevated in the political structures of Babylon they have power and authority and reputation and platform. And then all of a sudden they get told things like, hey, you need to bow down and worship this idol or you need to pray only to the king. And in that moment, they are prepared because they've worked the muscles. They understand what it is to be resolved, not to be defiled. And now everything, including their very lives, is hanging on it later on. They know what to do. And so my question is, where are you just going with the current of the moment? And where do you need to make a resolution not to be defiled? You see, when we believe that we're sent by God, we start to draw the line and say, okay, I'm gonna continue to remind myself I'm not at home. But the second activity that emerges from being sent by God as an exile feels like it's in direct tension with the first. And I want you to feel this. Not only do we resolve not to be defiled, but we submit wherever possible. We submit wherever possible. I wanna read a few verses to you, but just before I do, let me say this. In essence, what we're going to see, the brilliance of Daniel as a faithful, flourishing exile is this. He realizes that not everything is worth dying for. He realizes that not every hill has to be defended. 
he realizes that there has to be in discernment and wisdom living as an exile on the, on the edges. That there has to be a distinction between where is sin and where is just personal opinion and offense. Because if we live as a people of conviction that say all of it needs to be defended and we're the sort of people that are consistently throwing religious hissy fits over every issue, we will lose our platform as exiles to speak meaningfully into the world. Let me see if I can prove that to you from this text. Just a few notes. Look at verse 7 with me. We just read it. It it says this. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now what's lost on us is that in the Hebrew, the original names that these men came from Jerusalem with actually spoke praise to Yahweh. That's what their names meant. And when they arrived in Babylon, they were given new names that gave praise to Marduk and Aku, the gods of Babylon. And Daniel and his friends shrug and go, okay. They don't draw a line on that. They don't pound their fists and go, do you realize how demeaning this is that you're going to call me by a demon name, a, 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 you know, a, a demon god of Babylonian? My name brings praise to him. They don't go, well, I've got to stand my ground right here. I think today... Some would hurl critique at them and going, what compromise? Are you going to fight for your ground? For your right to be fully Israelite, fully faithful? And the recognition is they knew that they were exiles. They were going to die on that hill. It says, it says later in verse 17... As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. What's interesting is they spent three years being educated in the way of Babylon. And they finished at the top of their class. They learned Babylonian philosophy, wisdom, and religion, and history. And they didn't boycott the classes. They didn't sit outside and say, la, 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 I can't hear this. It doesn't honor God. I don't know part of it. Because the truth is, when we boycott the class, we lose the right to speak. And what Daniel knew in his wisdom is he was a principled person that goes, my soul is not going to be polluted. I am not from here. My primary allegiance is to God. But he steps into the space and says, but I will finish at the top of the class. I'm going to learn to to earn a platform to speak in this place. And I... For the sake of time, I won't read the verses, but in verses 9 to 14, we go back and see even where he does take a stand, he does so incredibly respectfully and creatively. Going, hey, let's try this on for 10 days. I'll eat vegetables and drink water and just see if God doesn't miraculously bless this. You see, we're, we're called to submit wherever possible. In some, let me say it like this, don't always be making a point. We should... We should be principled people, but we should be a delightful presence, even in Babylon. And you see, there's this tension that there's part of us that we may be tempted to assimilate. Some of you may go, drawing a line to not be polluted, to stand out and be different from those around me, I never want to do that. I just want to go along and get along. To that, Daniel would say, you will never be a flourishing exile in that way. You have to draw a line. You have to remain unpolluted. But to others that are going, yeah, that's right. I'm going to stay unpolluted and I'm going to fight for power. and I'm going to make this place like Jerusalem. And to that, Daniel would go, it's not Jerusalem. You're not home. You better learn how to submit wherever possible. 
You better, you better learn how to, to be a delightful presence even while remaining principled. This is the challenge of exilic living. And the last note is this. He doesn't just submit wherever possible, but he actually even takes it one step further and he leverages his gifts to bless and benefit the people of Babylon. Some of you feel like I've got a, a bad boss or a, I'm living in a, in a time and a place where certain laws are passed and things happen that I don't support and that I'm angry about. And into that place, here's Daniel representing God really beautifully and, and actually leveraging his gifts for the benefit of those around him. In verses 18 to 21, it says this. It says, At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. A couple of stunning notes about this. One, this was in, uh, now we're three years later. It's about 597 BC, somewhere in there. Incidentally, 11 years before Babylon finally burned Jerusalem to the ground. This means that Daniel was standing, providing wisdom to King Nebuchadnezzar when they were staging the final burning of Jerusalem. What does that mean? What it means is that Daniel was so willing to accept his assignment from the Lord. And incidentally, he knew that God was over all that was happening. That he was even in the courts while this was happening. Praying for God's strength and protection over his brothers, no doubt, as a principled person. But even then, serving this king. Stunning. That he would leverage his gifts in this way. It's actually what Jeremiah commanded in Jeremiah 29. He says, settle down in Babylon and seek the good of the city. Stunning. You see, Daniel and the three men with him have just infiltrated the court system. Four faithful teenage boys have just infiltrated the highest levels of leadership in Babylon. And then it finishes by saying, and he was there until Cyrus was king. That was 70 years later. Daniel was gonna stand in the courts of the king longer than Nebuchadnezzar. God was, was placing exiles like leaven in the dough like salt and like light in dark places. And it was because they were willing to believe that God sent them there. And they were willing to be principled people that were not polluted, but were willing to submit and even bless with their gifts. Wherever you feel most distant from home, where you feel the pain of being in Babylon, we feel the sting of knowing that we are created for another world that's free of death and sadness and longing, free of bad leaders and broken situations and bitterness and destruction, where we live in a land where we feel like, oh, the view of sexuality and identity and life and flourishing is under such it's being undermined in so many ways. And we go, what does it look like to operate in these places in these ways? We must realize that we have been sent by God into the moment in which we live. And that we're not just trying to be good. We're not trying to be like Daniel. We're not gonna go strive. What we're called to do is to respond ultimately to the presence and the power and the goodness of the ultimate exile. That Daniel, as we're so accustomed in studying the scriptures and seeing the whole story, He's merely a shadow. 
There's a greater exile coming whose name is Jesus Christ, willing to be exiled even from heaven and live as a sojourner and an alien walking in human flesh in this world. He made a resolution not to be defiled, being sent by God to this world. Even when he was confronted with Satan himself, he made a resolution about food and drink. He wasn't in the king's course feasting on, in the king's courts feasting on the king's food, but he was in the wilderness. And he was fasting and he was resolved not to let his soul be polluted by the indulgence of the world, not, not bowing down for the kingdoms of this earth. And as Jesus continued all the way to the end, resolving to give under Caesar's what is Caesar's, submitting where possible, yet remaining unpolluted, he came all the way to the end, perfectly righteous and whole. And what did he do? He didn't just leverage his gifts for the good of the wicked. He leveraged his very life for the good of the wicked. For you and for me. For people that assimilate or combative, for people that don't represent God's character, for people that protect ourselves rather than than pursue God, Jesus says, for you, I came for you. I came for the rebellious hordes that were calling for my blood. And even while I was dying, I said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. You see, in Jesus' death and his subsequent resurrection, he was painting the picture of the ultimate exile for us. He was showing us how we too can walk faithfully in the world in response to his grace and his goodness. And so brothers and sisters, we're on a journey over the next couple of months trying to learn how we can live, how we can live as sojourners and exiles in the world in response to Jesus' grace and goodness, paying attention to the model of Daniel and his friends. Will you go on this journey with us and learn not just how to survive as exiles, but how to thrive as exiles? Let me pray for us.